All right, everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. Many of you, I would guess most of you have probably heard of a book or read a book, The Seven Habits by Stephen Covey. And I got to tell you, it was one of the first books that got recommended to me when I was getting out of the military, getting into business. And I remember going through every single one of these seven habits and having them up on sticky notes on my wall. And it just formed like this foundation as I moved, you know, transitioned from the military into business. And today we have Scott Miller. Scott Miller, welcome to the podcast. John, thanks for the invitation and the platform to talk today. Well, I'm glad you're here. Scott Scott is with Franklin Covey, and I love your title. You're the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership. So that means you preside over thought leadership? <laughs> yeah, somewhat. Preside is a little bit heavy, but yeah. So I've been in the firm 23 years, just finished uh, nearly the last decade as the Chief Marketing Officer, and then took over a new role on the executive team, kind of helping to shape and point what is our point of view across all of our solutions, lift our, our authors, of which I am one. And so it's been a great appointment the last two years. Yeah, I bet. Now, tell me a little bit, you know, before that, you've actually been with Franklin Covey for... 24 years now. 24 years. And here's an interesting question for you, Scott. Over 24 years, culturally... What have you observed or noticed just around leadership styles and how things have just changed in organizational culture? Yeah, I think the biggest palpable learning is that uh, culture is something that is real. It is uh, tangible. It is a reason people quit their jobs or they stay or they join or they don't join. I think for decades, it was a nice thing to talk about. But now I think executives treat it the same way they treat their customer churn, their cost of goods, their EBITDA, their shareholders. I mean, this is a a vital asset that needs to be deliberately designed. I mean, people quit their cultures and executives need to be fully responsible for their contribution to culture, right? Leadership shapes culture. It's one of the top questions people ask in interviews. What is it like to work here? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's moved from a nice to have to a vital, necessary component in every organization. Yeah, you know, people and everybody out there listening, you know, you used to hear that people quit a boss. And I believe that that used to be true, but I don't think that's the case anymore. Like you said, people quit a culture there. I might have a great boss. Let's say I work for you, Scott, and I like you, but I see my other how other people get promoted, how other people get treated maybe by your peers at the management level. And people make very quick decisions uh, to leave an organization when they see things that they don't like. And, you know, I was just talking to somebody who decided to hire me and they said, listen, the other day I had two of my best people just walked into my office and handed me their resume with a smile on their face. So I knew that there was nothing I could do And they didn't even want to participate in the exit interview. They had already just made the decision and they were gone and I didn't see it coming. It came out of left field. And stuff like that is happening when we don't really focus on cleaning up this kind of this mess that tends to be created if we're not intentional. Yeah, well said. I think at three and a half percent unemployment in the U.S., people have unprecedented options, right? No longer is a graduate degree or even an undergraduate degree a requirement, right? It's just, you know, there's a whole different level of skills and competition out there now. People have options like never before. I do think people quit bad bosses, so I would not dismiss that. that. You no, didn't I, dismiss I agree. It's it, not right? exclusive, but I think it's, it's true. actually now 
There's yeah. more to it. I might have a good boss, but still quit. But I'm yeah. definitely going to leave a bad boss. How's I that? think you're absolutely right. Culture <laughs> is a key imperative as to why, especially the younger generation, right? They want to know what's it like to work here because people of the younger generation, you know, they want to be paid for their skills, but and most of them, money is not a top or even second motivator. No, I think it's at the bottom. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, one of my friends, Scott, just had somebody come and hire them. He is an incredible software developer and project lead. He took a $6,000 a year pay cut because the company that he was at insisted that he was there from eight to five every single day and worked on site. And he wanted Wednesday afternoons off to go volunteer at the pet shelter. And they said, no, you're going to have to figure that out on the rest of your time. This is company time. Yeah, see ya. And the new company said, yeah, as long as you hit your milestones and get your work done, we don't care. I mean, yeah, go bring some of your, you know, bring your colleagues with you or encourage them to go do stuff. And he's like, so he took a $500 a month pay cut to go work at a place that also valued the contribution he wanted to make, you know, in and outside of work. That's no longer an outlier. That's a norm. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the things I love about, we're talking about everybody listening today, uh, what I was excited about having Scott on for, you wrote a book called Management Mess um, to Leadership Success. And you wrote this book, what really struck me is that you wrote it for people that didn't feel like they were groomed for leadership. You know, they're kind of messy. They might not have had a lot of really good leadership modeled to them in their life. And I you know, out there just working on the front lines with so many organizations, there's a lot of people, I would say mid-20s, all the way up into their 40s, that unfortunately have not had some, you know, outstanding leadership either modeled to them or some of those leadership habits and how to do some of the things taught to them. So, you know, somebody listening who is like, wow, you just described me. If you were just sitting down having a conversation around the fire pit with them, Scott, where would you start? How would you encourage them to, to move forward? Yeah, I think that too often, in fact, too frequently, we promote individual producers to become leaders of people. Mm-hmm. Not everyone should be a leader of people. I think everybody has some leadership capability in them, lead a project, lead a an initiative, uh, lead your life, lead your family. But not everybody is naturally inclined or wants to be a leader of people. What happens is, John, we promote the best dental hygienist or the most creative digital designer or the top producing salesperson to then become the leader of the team. And it's often a, a horrible mistake because rarely do the qualities of the top revenue producing salespeople ever correlate to be the leader of the sales team. In fact, they're often the exact opposite, right? I mean, a great salesperson usually is very competitive. They like to win, often against their colleagues, be the top of the scoreboard, be in the limelight. They like the significance. Those are actually good qualities to have as a salesperson. Those are horrible qualities to have as a sales leader. Your job as a sales leader is to step back from the limelight and to learn that your job is to get done with work done with and through other people. So first, I think too often people are promoted for the wrong reasons. We seek these leadership promotions for the wrong reason. There is no shame in deciding that your true talent or your, the talent you want to learn next isn't to lead people. I think the industry, the leadership development industry has done a bit of a whack job. And I think uh, Fortune 5,000 companies where they only will promote you if you lead a team, it's sending the wrong message because not everybody wants to or should be a leader of people. 
I think secondly, when we do promote people, we tend to leave them in a lurch. You know, the Harvard Business Review published a, a story, a research study that the average age, John, that someone gets promoted into their first management role is age 30. But the average age that they receive their first formal leadership training is 42. So there's a 12-year, you know, kind of walking in the wilderness that most people just try to make it up. And they make it up somewhat successfully, but if they're like me, they thought, well, I was promoted, so the company must like the way I do things. I'm going to turn everybody else into my clone. That's what I did. Right. I moved from being a successful sales producer to being a sales leader. So I went out on a tirade, quite frankly, trying to convert everybody into what I did, when in fact, my job was to help them get the same results that I achieved, but with their own passions, maturity, fears, interests, skills, so on and so forth. So well, that's right. Cause you, I mean, it worked for you. It's what you know. So it's what you're going to go teach because people haven't taught you, you know, how do I take this and adapt it to somebody that might have that's a very right. different personality, mindset, approach. Than Paradigm, me. right. Belief systems, skill sets, right. And also in our culture now, we also tend to kind of look at things as either right or wrong, right? This is successful. This is my way. So there must be there maybe there's something wrong with that person or they're just not a good fit. Yeah. And then yeah. we throw a judgment down, which is in many cases completely unfair. Well said, right? There, there are black and whites. There are absolutes. There are rights and wrongs when it comes to character, ethics. But there's so many other areas that leaders need to accommodate, shift their mindset. I wrote this book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, because everybody's got a mess, no mm -hmm. one's a complete mess. No one's a complete success. And the more as a leader that you can just own your mess, you through your vulnerability, through your confidence, through your own sense of security, just admit you've got messes. People are talking about them. The receptionist, your colleagues, people who work for you, they all know your messes, right? You've got blind spots. When you can own your mess, then as a leader, you make it safe for others to own theirs. It doesn't mean that you license bad behavior or that you wallow in your messes. But I want to work on a team where my boss is so secure, so confident, and so vulnerable that she can admit to us the things that she's uncomfortable with. And then we can rally around her and build, bring our competencies to complement what might be her messes and vice versa. That's a culture that people want to win and stay in. And I think I wrote these 30 challenges that the book is structured around that we all face. I'm a mess at some of them. I'm a little bit better success at others, but I share a lot of very self-deprecating, sometimes even horrifying messes that, you know, a supposed leadership expert, which some say I am, had to face and fail. And in some cases, you know, build big maturity around. So I think it's why the book has done so well, because so many of these leadership book genres are very academic. They're very aspirational, professorial. This book is as tangible and practical as you can get from somebody who probably should not have been a leader of people. And that's me. Well, yeah. And just as a note, everybody out the book, what I love that you did, the 30 days and you laid it out, um, just like the first one is demonstrate humility. And it's not just about why you should do it and, you know, the background and what it gives you, but you actually have a checklist right at the end. Like, you know, hey, go find somebody who maybe has a very different perspective than you and sit down and have a conversation with them. I think that right there 
if we just put that into practice and just listen and come from a place of curiosity and try to understand the differences, just building that as a skill to really see the value in everybody around you, that's just the first, you know, your first challenge on day one. But just that as a practice, I think can transform an entire organization. It can. I think it's counterintuitive for leaders. I think the more we assimilate power and experience, the less likely we are to maybe understand our blind spots and to show humility. Humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. That's a quote from Dr. Covey. And I'll tell you, that had a profound impact on me, John, because often I think I was more concerned with being right, grounded in my ego, right? And my own experience. I love this quote. I'll read it again. Humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. I used to think that humble leaders were weak people, shy, retiring. I liked loud, charismatic leaders. And I was wrong. I mean, you can be a great leader and not be a blowhard or be the guy that, you know, pumps out, you know, beats from the stage and gets everybody riled up. Those leaders also are great, but it's really given me a better appreciation for the strength that humility is in leadership because humility is born out of confidence. Confident people can become humble people. It's arrogant people who are incapable of being humble leaders. No, I agree with that. And you said something earlier that I want to, I'd like to circle back to, you know, you said people are promoted for the wrong reasons. And with our labor market so tight right now, there are, a lot of people that are technically skilled at whatever their job is. We need somebody to lead a project, to lead a team. So we're taking that person that's best at whatever it happens to be, sales or in the warehouse in a certain area, and we move them into a leadership role. The company's busy. Like you said, they're not getting formal training. So if you're that person that just got moved into a actual defined leadership role in your organization, and it is completely feels like it's out of your wheelhouse. Yeah. What do they do? Yeah, I'm very clear on this. I think your leader should do this for you. But if she or he is incapable for whatever reason, right? Just understanding, knowledge, maturity, time, attention. You should sit someone down, probably your leader or another leader in the organization and have a very self-aware discussion with them. Can you tell me, John, what are some of the talents and skills that I possessed as an individual producer that got me promoted? And which of those do you think I'm going to need to leave behind that will not serve me well in my real world? Like make a list on a chart pad. Scott, you're great at these nine things. And these five, you literally need to stop doing tomorrow. Leave them behind and then make a sec second list on a T-chart. What are some of the new skills that I need to learn to adapt, to employ, that I'm going to have to pull upon, draw upon to become a leader? It doesn't mean I'm going to learn tomorrow how to have high courage conversations or tomorrow learn how to talk straight or tomorrow learn how to craft you know, great goals or identify behaviors in people that have to you know, be developed. These are skills that you learn. You don't just you know, osmotically, you know, demonstrate them tomorrow. But I think it's an inventory of what got me here won't get me there and be very practical around things to shut down and leave behind as an individual producer and new talents and skills that I need to learn and groom into. Had someone done that for me when I was promoted from being the top salesperson 
to being a sales leader, it would have transformed my resonance and trustworthiness amongst the team. But the fact of the matter is my leader probably says, would probably think he did that. For whatever reason, he either didn't do it right or I lacked the maturity to hear it. But just practically, if someone would have said, Scott, you have an amazing sense of self-confidence. And even sometimes borderlines on arrogance, you have got to check that because that can be very off-putting or intimidating to people. I would have probably said, wow, thank you for that. What does that look like? What does that sound like? When do I do that? Scott, you have a very big vocabulary. You can stand up on stage in front of a client and you can speak extemporaneously and it's quite appealing, but it's also very diminishing to other people because you can find ways consciously or unconsciously to insult people. Simplify it. Talk more simple. Don't try to, you know, whip out your intellectual prowess on people because in most <laughs> cases it, you know, diminishes. I never knew that. Thank you for telling me that. This, those types of things, right? Scott, you need to slow down. Your brain, now listen, I'm no genius, Fred, but I tend to think fast and I talk fast. Scott, you're a fairly anxious person and sometimes that anxiousness is great. It translates into having a bias for action. It also sometimes unsettles people because you treat relationships the same way you treat your email. Click it, open, respond, delete. You gotta slow down with people. There's a time to be efficient. Processes, systems, meetings, texts, email. There's a time to be effective with relationships. Close your laptop, turn off your phone, take off your glasses, focus on the person. Had someone kind of inventoried my strengths and my weaknesses, what to leave behind and what to adopt, I think it would have had a exponential impact on not just my comfort as a leader, but the way that I built trusting relationships. That's my advice. Get someone, if not your own leader, somebody else in leadership to assess your current skills and tell you which things to leave behind and which things to adopt. Yeah, and I get the sense... Scott, that you actually wrote this book to be in that role if somebody in their environment doesn't have the kind of person that can either I did can yep. give that feedback or is right. willing to. And the other thing that comes in too is, right, I'm, if we really solicited some of that candid feedback, I know in my life, right, there's kind of these two categories. There's this feedback I agree with, even if I don't want to hear it, that I'm going to take and I'm going to process. But then there's also some of that feedback that I might not agree yeah. with. It's just out of alignment with who I want to be or who I see myself as. And so I have in the past tended to dismiss that. Now I've really changed my approach on that, but that is a process to do that. And I, what I would say is if people go through these challenges, day one through 30, you're not only going to be self-coaching yourself, and I would encourage people to get a coach or find that, that mentor, that boss above you, but there is a way forward. I think that's a good thing is, is what you're talking about is even if you feel like you have totally outkicked your coverage, you're in that role, you cannot only get to a place where you're competent, but you can thrive, but it's going to take some work, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, with these 30 challenges in the book, challenge 16, I call make it safe to tell the truth. And that's both about providing feedback to others, which is a fundamental role in every leadership position, but also making it safe for others to tell you the truth. Because as leaders, regardless of whether you're a frontline leader, a mid-level leader, or in the C-suite, like I am fortunate now to have earned my way into, 
people don't tell you the truth. People are naturally cowards. Now, that's not a character flaw. That's a personality trait. Very few people will go to the boss and say, boss, that PowerPoint presentation you gave was horrible. I mean, you had like 70 slides. People were texting each other. You're much better at Q&A. People don't do that unless as the leader, you make it safe for others to tell you their truth. Because not all feedback is helpful. Like you just said, John, some feedback to the leader is about their ex-wife. <laughs> some is about a boss who talks like you. Some is about a boss they used to not like. So at the more you are comfortable at receiving feedback, soliciting it, not disputing it, not disparaging it or refuting it, just writing it down, asking some clarifying questions, the more adept you'll be at deciding then, is this feedback helpful for me? Is this feedback more about them or is it more about me? And then decide what role does it have to play in your life. But first you have to make it your brand that you are open to feedback and you generally aren't using it as a cover for just being validated. Because I'll tell you, one of my weaknesses, I'm actually really great at asking for feedback. But the fact of the matter is, John, I'm a bit of a poser. What I really want is for you just to love me and give me good qualities. I'll suffer through some of the high courage stuff that maybe I don't want to hear. And I've got to be better at really generally checking my intent. Do I really want to hear what I need to improve at? Or am I really just asking for your feedback, knowing that as the boss, you'll probably just suck up to me and tell me how great I am. Right. You're looking for that affirmation. You are. Yeah. I'm just calling it out. It's my mess, right? I'm actually really, one of my brands at the company is, wow, Scott really is great at asking for and taking feedback. But as I really kind of unpacked my own baggage, I thought, you know, what I really want is you just to love me. I don't really care if the 19th person says that I did this or that. Like you, I'm on a journey from mess to success, so I'm more aware of that. But Feedback is invaluable if you want to address your blind spots and build your self-awareness. In 25 years as a leader, I have interviewed and hired hundreds of people. I've also terminated dozens of people. I have never fired someone because of their inability, technically, to do their job. It was always an unwillingness. It was either low self-awareness, incapable or for whatever reason, choosing not to check their ego, collaborate with people, say they are sorry, apologize, take responsibility for their share. And the more you are self-aware of what it's really like to be on a team with you, what it's like to work on a project with you, what it's like to be led by you, heck, what it's like to be married to you, the better you can move, the faster you can move from mess to success. Yeah. And what I've found, Scott, is some of my best places to really see the results of improving is not only my marriage, but my relationship with my three boys, right? My, you have three boys. So do I. Yeah. I have three boys. They're amazing. One well, of them. How old are your boys? Uh, 22, 20, and uh, 16. My 22 wow. year old now works uh, for me at the company. He's become a coach. He's got this amazing passion to coach and disciple kids his age so they can really connect to who they truly are and connect to a purpose. So they're actually moving into either into college or into the workforce intentionally versus just being swept along by all the expectations that are swirling around them. You're living the dream. That is the dream that I want to live with my three boys. Oh, it's exciting. I'm, well, my vision for my company is to create something 
as we build and grow that all three boys eventually would are welcome. Yes. Contribute and they would want to be part of. Now, will they all want to do that? That's my dream. But that's what we are intentionally every day creating a company that would, you know, include like my wife. It's me, my wife, my son. We have a team of about 10 now, but that's the core. It's amazing. But um, I'm so glad you shared that. My boys are five, seven, and nine. Okay. And that's the exact path that I am hoping to follow. I'm going to take this offline with you sometime and figure out what are some of the mistakes that I could avoid to make sure that their passions come out, but ideally maybe come out, you know, working together as a team. Well, you know, here, here's just one thought for you because, uh, you know, we're talking about mentorship, right? I think it's so important for us to find people in our life that have done what we want to do. And when we're bringing a mentor into our life, we need to look at everything that they do. I've always looked at not only their business success, how they handle their finances, how they talk about their wife, do they have a relationship with their kids? I remember once uh, I got out of the Navy and there was this very wealthy guy who offered to mentor me, but he was on his third wife. He didn't have any relationship with his kids. And what I was thinking in my head was, well, I could listen to him. I could probably succeed phenomenally, but at the expense of some things that were very important to me. Because I I knew that if I took his advice, I was going to get what he got and I didn't want all of it. (laughs) So I had to find somebody else. But let me ask you this. So this is, I see this a lot. Let's say you have that person you're talking to like, man, right on. I'm in. I want to do this work. I want to become a great leader. But they're looking at some of the leadership above them they're starting to get a view of that, that, you know, they're now on the management team and they're like, wow, the folks above us are not the leader that you just described. This is really frustrating. What do you do when you're kind of in that position where you almost kind of feel like you're the one person trying to make it better? Well, that's life, right? I mean, that's every organization. In some case, you're going to find people higher up from you that are well-intended. No one wakes up in the morning and comes to work trying to destroy everybody's lives, right? I mean, I think the more that you suspend judgment, you assume good intent in people, that you recognize that if somebody above you in the organization isn't behaving like you wish they would, you know, beyond their character, right? I mean, character is, low character is a no deal. It's your ticket to the game. But, you know, if someone is just, you know, behaving like a jerk or not being respectful, provided they're not, you know, violating your company values, you could step back and say, so I wonder what's going on in their life. Because everybody's got something going on. Everyone's got a kid who's vaping. Everyone's got an in-law moving into dementia. Everybody's got a bill they can't pay. Maybe be a little more forgiving of that person's behavior while you model in your own what you want to see in them. Dr. Covey popularized this concept of living in your circle of influence versus your circle of concern. Is that really being just laser, palpably focused on modeling in your behavior. When someone above you is gossiping or they're you know, disparaging someone in your presence, simply say, you know, I'm sure your intention is not to hurt their feelings. I'll bet if they heard you say that, that's what would happen. And so I'm going to let you say that directly to them and I'm going to suspend judgment. And if I find myself in that same situation with them, I will take that to them directly. That's not shaming them. That's not, you know, grabbing the moral high ground. It's just basically saying, I'll bet that would hurt their feelings. I'm sure that wasn't your intention. If somebody else is doing something that you wish they would do differently, you could just, you know, suddenly say, you know, I have struggled with that. 
myself, and I am really intent on trying to be more effective with my relationships and slowing down and taking time to really appreciate people. It's a struggle for me. Sounds like it's also a struggle with you. You know, this idea from Gandhi, right? I mean, be the light that you see. I love Dr. Covey's quote, uh, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. And that it says easy, does hard, right? Common knowledge isn't always common practice. But if you find yourself in that situation you described with leaders above you that may not have had access to this podcast, right? They maybe have been so busy, so being effective, so living in fear of their own insecurities, they never had a great leader model to them. Maybe pre-forgive them. Don't just forgive them. Pre-forgive them. Assume good intent and just subtly let them see you behaving in the way that you wish they would. Sometimes it will work. Sometimes it won't. It may be that you have to create the culture on your own team and live with their culture. Or like some of your employees, John, who handed in their resignations, you may be working in the wrong culture. Yeah, and that's a determination you have to make. And, you know, you said some really important things in there that I really want to highlight. I think, uh, I know, gossip and we define it as saying something negatively about somebody else when you're not part of the problem or the solution. And gossip is a cancer that can destroy an organization. So if you just got moved into a management role and you're gossiping about your boss to your team, I'll tell you right now, you are ruining your credibility with them. I'm going to build on that. It is the cancer. Mm -hmm. Gossip is the cancer in every organization. When you defend those who are absent, you retain the trust of those present. So you should be loyal to everyone, just like they were sitting across from you at the meeting at the table, as if they were on a plane to Albuquerque. Do not say anything about anyone differently if they are not in the meeting, as if they were in the meeting. That doesn't mean you don't talk straight. That doesn't mean you don't call people out on their messes. Now, maybe do it in private, but you do it face-to-face with them because you destroy trust with those who are present if you are disparaging those who are absent because that person's thinking, well, if Scott will trash John, when John's on a plane to Albuquerque, he's definitely going to trash me next. Mm -hmm. It's a high standard, but you are absolutely right. It doesn't matter if the CEO does it or the, your vice president's doing it because people will behave how they, what they see modeled to them. You need to be the transition figure. Don't point the finger at anybody else. The next time you say to someone, something to someone, make sure you say, you know what? I don't know what John's intentions were on that. I'm going to wait till he lands in Albuquerque. Let's conference him in and have him explain himself. Let's move to the next topic. You will transform the culture in your team when you forego the chance to gossip. It doesn't mean you don't have high courage conversations. It doesn't mean you don't talk straight. It doesn't mean you don't don't confront reality. Those are your jobs as a leader. But you can never speak disparagingly about someone when they are absent. Yeah. And one of the things you can do, one of my mentors, Ford Taylor, shared this with me. And when I go in with a team now, we create what's called a social covenant. I sit down, let's say you're a new manager, you're promoted. It's very simple. You sit down with the team and say, hey, when we're together, how do we want to treat each other? What does it look like? Let's all agree to that. And then if somebody breaks that, 
how are we going to address it as a team? You can't have dependent events. We actually need a process. But we actually, in that, actually define what gossip is. Yeah. And then now we actually have something, because it's part of our vision for the kind of team that we want to be and how we want to operate. And as a team, how do we want to be known? And even if this is different than the rest of the organization, what I have seen that when you can create an extraordinary team that you're leading, that influence, that, that, that light you talked about, Scott, can now have this positive influence on other teams because they're like, wow, I want to be on Scott's team. They're amazing. They get along. They, the conflict actually creates innovation and creativity. These guys can have at it to get to the best solution and they're going to lunch together. Man, what is going on there? And you know what? It's not that hard to do, but it definitely takes some personal change, some work, and some intention. Yeah, it takes deliberation. I mean, you just described a culture that didn't accidentally devolve, right? It very intentionally evolved that great cultures don't happen by happenstance, right? They are the result of deliberate attention, behaviors, activities, right? So as a leader, do just what you said, John. Sit down and say, what kind of culture do we want to create here? We're going to fall down. We're going to have to make some apologies. We're going to have to pre-forgive each other. But if we really palpably call out what kind of culture do we want to work in on our team, you could insulate yourself from a broader culture and organization where you weren't even involved in that, weren't, weren't even involved in the other gossip or backbiting or duplicity or lies, whatever it is. And eventually your team will become the culture of the organization because everybody wants to work in a high trust culture. Not everyone knows what their contribution should be. Yeah, and here's a suggestion I would, I would say. To, I think sometimes reading a book as a team, especially if you're a new manager, can be so powerful. And your book is perfectly set up to do this. If you had your team reading this and then everybody talked about demonstrating humility, let's say on week one, and then the following week everybody shared some of the conversations, what they learned, and then you, you know, uh, week two, everybody's read Think Abundantly and you're talking about the checklist you have here. What are some things that we've done as a team, as individuals to do that? You can use reading a book and having these conversations because most people have never had these kind of conversations as a way to grow and develop your team and just step into your leadership role uh, with everybody else who's in the same mess, but we're all trying to move in a, you know, up and to the right, you know? Well said. Drop the mic. <laughs> I, that's why I organized the book the way it was, right? 30 challenges to become the leader you would follow. You can do a one a day for 30 days. You can do them once a week for 30 weeks. I wrote the book in very small chapters. These chapters are three and four pages. I think a lot of my own stories that I share are very um, relatable. Yep. Everybody, you know, is, you know, is failing. So I like that idea of a leader, you know, um, in fact, you know, thousands of people. There's a reason why the book was number one on Amazon for six weeks in its category, because it's a different kind of leadership book that allows leaders, just like you said, get a copy of your team, sit down and read it for 30 weeks. You will transform the culture of your team, the accountability of your members and your own insight into your beliefs about yourself, your company, your team, your family, your contribution. If you read Management Mess to Leadership Success. 
Yes, and you can get that on Amazon, any place that sells books. And, and what's right. your website? How do people get in touch with you and what you're doing at Franklin Covey, Scott? Yeah, so you can follow me on LinkedIn, probably the best place. I uh, host a radio program for iHeartRadio and a podcast, and I write an article for Inc. Magazine. LinkedIn is the best place to find me. You also can go to the website, managementmess.com, and learn more about me, the book, see some videos about um, why I wrote the book as well. Awesome. So just as we wrap up, my friend, uh, what are just some final thoughts you'd like to leave with everybody listening? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson I learned is this idea that Dr. Covey again said, with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. That if you want to build high trust, high reward relationships, which by the way, are the backbone of every organization, this idea that people are an organization's most valuable asset is a nice cliche, but it's bunk. People are not an organization's most valuable asset. It is the relationships between John and Scott that is an organization's ultimate competitive advantage because John can be a Rhodes Scholar and Scott can be a genius but if we can't get along, work together, and complement each other's strengths and weaknesses, then we are not an asset. Slow down with your relationships. There's a time to be efficient. There's a time to be effective. You cannot be efficient with people. Well, thank you for ending on that note. You are absolutely spot on there. It's all about the relationships that we have because we have to connect before we can pull and have that positive influence on others. And so that's just a great note to end on. And man, uh, our time went by way too fast. Scott, I'd love to have you back on the podcast and uh, I'd be honored continue to continue this conversation. You invite me, I'll come back. You got a deal. <laughs> <laughs>